0: Hey, I'm Katie, this is the Writability Podcast. Today, we're going to be doing a cross-discipline episode. So I'm here with two COS professors today. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves?
1: Hi, I'm Erica Armstrong, and I have been teaching here at COS for going on my seventh year, uh, but this is about my 12th or
2: 13th year now. Gosh, losing track of teaching college writing. My name's Josh Muller. Like you said, uh, I've been teaching psychology here at COS. Uh, full-time, um, I'm going to be starting my 13th year. I taught three years before that um, here as well. Started in 2005, so I'm officially old now.
0: <laughs> nah. You're from psychology, you're from English, I'm just going to start with my story of like realizing that writing is different in different disciplines. I remember in undergrad taking a philosophy class and completely failing a rough draft. I did really well in my English classes. I would do really well in my English papers. Um, And I went to a friend who was a philosophy major and I was like, what? what the heck did I do wrong here? Like, I, I wrote this like I would write any other paper. He tore it apart. I was tackling too big of a topic for, for how they write in philosophy. I wasn't, like, taking the steps as meticulously as I should have. Like, there was all these things. And I think that was, for me, one of the first moments I realized that it wasn't just different teaching styles, because different teachers do value different things, but that I also had to learn how to adapt to the discipline I was writing in. Do you guys have any like moments where you realized you needed to change disciplines, that you needed to make those kinds of shifts?
2: I did notice differences in writing in different disciplines from English courses versus, you know, science courses. What I noticed in my undergraduate career was in a lot of lower division courses, it was a lot of summary papers. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, you read an article or some piece of literature and then you just summarize it. I remember when I transferred over to a university and took kind of my first upper division class, I had to do what they called a reaction paper. And so the reaction paper, I wasn't exposed to that beforehand. And the instructor didn't really tell us how to do it. They just said, read this you know, article and then write this reaction paper. And so I went into summary mode again and then I failed miserably. And not only did I receive an F on that assignment, but the professor also called me out in class and said, this is how you do not write this paper. I've had a lot of that like be shamed in front of class moments in my academic career and uh, messed up a lot, you know, but in regards to, you know, this assignment I was like, wait, they're asking my critical opinion uh, of this article and not just a regurgitation of uh, what I read, but you know, to actually critique it and and to evaluate it and uh, that was a game changer for me because I think If you recognize when you're going through college, uh, you're a passive observer at first, and then you become much more active. And I think that's the real lesson in in college is now you get to judge things, you get to evaluate things once you have obtained the correct tools.
0: Thank you for that. Eric, do you have any stories?
2: I, I think I have two that really
1: opened my eyes to how different disciplines and even focused areas within a discipline treat writing differently. Mm. And so one, after kind of learning through like the, the lower division undergrad, of like writing through English one, English two, like the critical thinking classes and stuff and facing obstacles there. And then learning how to navigate them and moving forward. It was in my upper division undergraduate where you had to choose a theme for like your upper division general ed. I chose philosophy and war. And one of the classes I had to take was foreign policy in a nuclear age. And I still remember the class because I got a B on this paper. I was just flummoxed like, You know, read the book and like devoured it. Loved the concepts. Wrote this paper that I thought, I do great at this kind of stuff. And it was a B. And I was like, what? (laughs) And I tried to talk to the professor. This particular professor was not one for communicating with students. So I never really learned why I got to be on that paper. But it was an eye opener that like whatever he was valuing, not just as an individual instructor, but like what he was valuing in the discipline of like foreign policy and what was important to draw attention to and what wasn't, clearly I wasn't doing something. Thinking back on it now, I probably was doing too much of like language analysis of the author and like what that could possibly mean. And I'm certain that that this guy was like, well, yeah, that's probably true. But like, we don't care about that. And the second one was when I moved from undergraduate to graduate. In undergraduate, the way these things are stacked, you're supposed to take an introductory to theory course if you're an English major. I took that course, but I took it from a professor who was, let's say, um, eccentric, and not standard in his approach. And he talks about a lot of things except for literary theory. And so I left that class not really understanding what I I think what I needed to know. And when I got to my graduate level theory course, very much like Josh, the first paper I turned in was like an F and like a redo this paper. She had torn the last two pages off of it because she said she only wanted it. So I never even got that page back. But it was also a really clear Demarcation for me to understand that, like, the quality and tasks of writing for a graduate level theory class was very different than the, the moves I was making in an undergraduate literature and composition world, right? Even where I was analyzing and applying theory, they expected more in different kinds of analytical moves. And I think in many respects, like Josh was saying, to be much more active in your analysis and how you see the text working and how you see it situated within a larger conversation. And so it was really kind of flashlight moment of, oh my gosh, this writing situation thinks that I have all of this other knowledge I don't have yet.
0: I really like connection that both of you are making, like how much like analyzing versus how, how much summary is like required in each discipline and in each situation is something that I think I see a lot of students struggling with, even when they go from high school into college writing um, into our English ones, because all of a sudden I'm like, yeah, do a little summary, but I, I want to hear your voice. I want to hear your opinion. And for a lot of students, like they have that moment where they're like, wait, what? I'm not just like repeating back to you. And it's probably also jarring doing that. And then if they go into other undergrad classes, like some of the ones that Josh and Eric had, where they, you know, maybe they are expected to just summarize again. I could see that like shift back and forth being really, really jarring,
1: right? For sure. And and what even summary means in different areas? You know, I imagine mm. that like summary for English 1 probably looks very different than summary for administration of justice or criminal justice major. Like, what does it mean to summarize like an incident versus like summarizing a text? And I imagine those things are very different, even though we call them the same thing.
0: Yeah, that's true. For me, one of the biggest things that I notice, especially when I spend time uh, tutoring in writing center, that students struggle with is like, how to engage with sources in different forms of writing. It seems um like we value different things and use sources different ways depending on the discipline. Um, so if you find a source for a paper in your discipline, like how should students use those sources in their paper?
2: Sure, I'll I'll go. Um, first, let me make a comment, Eric, uh you got a B on that paper. That was a good <laughs> I know,
0: right? I, He's complaining yeah. about a B <laughs>
2: But uh, And then uh, just before, I I will address that, but um, also it seemed like our common denominator here is about moving the needle, right? As you were saying, Katie, you were saying that it's being a more active kind of participant and not just, you know, summarizing material. And a lot of students have that, I call it like I'm not worthy syndrome, where they don't have faith in their own abilities. And so you have to just continue to encourage them. Like, no, no, no. What you say, your opinion matters, and and your voice should be heard. And uh, that's, I think, a great thing that I know a lot of English professors advocate for. I think other disciplines need to work on it a little bit more, but um, I know you guys are doing a good job. But anyway, going back to the original question. Sorry, I'm I'm what they call tangential. Okay,
0: tangents are perfect for podcasts. <laughs> yeah. You're good. Tangent all over the place.
2: Yeah, so we do this much more in my research methods course than the uh, introductory courses, but I mean, they are doing research in all of them a little bit, looking up sources. And first, it's about, you know, making sure that they understand the difference between credible sources and and Mm non-credible types of sources and how to identify those. And sometimes it's tricky, especially with the interweb now where you know, any, you know, blogger can throw anything up there. And then you have a lot of secondary sources who are missing uh, some of the meat and potatoes of the original article. And then it depends on what the assignment entails. But typically what I'm asking them to do in a a research paper is originally getting kind of literature support for their argument or for whatever they're studying. And so, you know, it's easy to tell when a student reads an abstract of a research article versus the entire article. And so calling them out on that too. And then basically telling them like, hey, you're gonna try to explain this as if you're explaining it to your grandma. Like how would you say it in the way that they would understand it? And that makes it you know, more real and I think they're less dependent on direct quotes. I don't know how it is in MLA but APA format We encourage paraphrasing versus the use of direct quotations. For me, I just tell them directly, I'm like, I want you to put this into your own words so that I know that you actually understand it. You're still citing sources. They're not your own ideas, but you want to do it in a very flowing, conversational type of fashion. And then plugging in kind of what you're thinking and relating it to your topic and your own research questions, that takes a lot of work. And at first, they struggle with it tremendously. And I have a lot of students who write their papers, almost looking like scholarship applications or something like personal statements. And I'm like, especially in the social sciences, we want information. So just report that factual information. I don't need like rainbows and butterflies. You have to just directly get to the point.
1: I think in English one, I I love the idea of just contrasting some of the the approaches. So like, Josh was saying like, it's a literature review, right? Almost like you're gathering support for your argument and understanding like, is this thesis or is this a hypothesis? Does it have support within the discipline? I think part of the difference might be that in the research methods, uh, Josh is kind of teaching a capstone course, right? When we teach in English one, we're kind of teaching an introductory course. So I think one of the differences is that we often support the personal. I think this is how sometimes like instruction in English 1 actually doesn't do what other disciplines think they do because we support the personal in a way to help students see how their personal experience is actually part of their knowledge base in addition to what other evidence you might have. And then we approach evidence and like other sources as situating themselves within a larger conversation, I mean, I think you know one of the foundational like theoretical lenses is like you know the Berkean parlor where it 's like lots of people talking there 's lots going on in the conversation, and how do you situate yourself within that conversation meaningfully and I think in English as a discipline, we also value the personal as well, like I think in academic articles, we can get away with more of the personal this is how I understand it, this is how I've experienced it, right? Then perhaps you can in other disciplines. I remember having a colleague who works at CSU Chico who's been doing some disciplinary work with science and composition and how she put together a proposal with her colleagues to present like this this idea about writing at a science conference. And the, her science folk were like, no, no, don't do it like that. They don't want to hear that stuff. Like take all of this out. This is all they want to see. <laughs> um, and she was really like, felt out of her depth, right? Because she's so used to this discipline and what's acceptable there that moving even really good information to a different place required a whole different set of practices and approaches. And so I think like we encourage our students to say, what's the conversation say? What's out there? And how does your argument fit within that? And then I think like you were talking about using MLA versus APA and what it encourages you. And I think MLA actually encourages quotations and you see it actually in the citation. They actually value the author over the currency of the information, right? Like APA says like, I want to know the author's name, but I want to know when this thing was published. that'll tell me something really quickly about the currency of that information and about how applicable it might be. Whereas in MLA... Like that stuff's in the works cited list. Like we want to know who this person is. Well, and what page number it's on too,
0: right? We want to know what page that direct quote is Yeah, even
1: if you're paraphrasing, where's the page number? right? So that we can go find that specific thing from that author. I'm experiencing this, an article I've been working on is about to be published. And we just went through like the last editing stage. But one of the things that I noticed was that like the editors for this journal were encouraging more of the reference citations versus the quotation citations, right? Like what you were talking about, Joshua, you're paraphrasing it, and you're summarizing it, and then you're just leaving the reference for them to find. But there were still also really important parts where it was like, you want to drop names because it provides ethos for your argument and situates you within a kind of canon of authors. And so I think that's a really interesting thing that students have trouble navigating sometimes is that they were told here that this is the good way to do that. And then they go to like Josh's class and they're like, okay, here's all this stuff about me and how I sit in this. Psychology is like, "Uh, okay, great. But in the final draft, we don't want any of that there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) It's not entirely true. I mean, in the research class, you know, we're trying to conduct a research study. So, um, and authors are acknowledged for sure. And they are big names in the field as well. But you're right. It's more content driven. But in in terms of the personal, like the personalization of it, I know in my general and especially in my social psychology class, there is more of an emphasis on how does this make you feel? How is this applied to your life? And it's interesting because when I have my students take Psych 1 or Psych 5 and they've just been in English, you see a lot of those conventions bridge across. Research tends to be the game changer where I'm like, okay, so now we're going to do this much more Like in a formal fashion. But even then, when they are coming up with their research ideas, they are brainstorming and they're basically giving me these two major topic areas. And I ask them, how do these topics? apply to you. And as opposed to relying on the literature, like they delve into the literature after, but I want their own personal investment in it and that they can do really well. And so it is unfortunate that I'm like sweeping the rug out from under them and saying like, no, 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 no one cares how you feel. It's, it's what you know. And then, like you said, when you're taking multiple classes every semester and you're having to jump from one discipline to the other, and you're really shifting gears. And I don't know if students do that very efficiently.
1: Yeah, I I agree. I'm not sure that they do. I think that actually feeds into what becomes kind of like a negative stereotype around writing is that it's always like, I'm not going to take what I've learned in this place, because every time I move, it seems to be totally different. And I think it's partly because they don't see that kind of situational disciplinary context in the way that we do, because they're not steeped in it yet, right? They're learning. And w- instead, what they come away with is like, well, every instructor is just different. There's <laughs> no good writing, and teachers just randomly make up stuff, right? Sure. I've been trying to do a lot of my classes is make them more aware that, like, what I'm teaching you here is really based in this context of humanities in MLA, like freshman composition situation, when you get farther in whatever discipline you are, you are gonna face like different formatting guidelines. You're gonna face different conventions that have nothing to do with the formatting, but have to do with the discipline. And try to make them more aware that when they move, Josh, if they move into your class, like several of my students have done, um, because I've watched their presentations at the end of the semester they are aware that like, when you're asking them to do something, it's not because you're just making up your own (laughs) writing context, right? But like, hopefully they see that like, I'm now moving into the psychology expertise and these are the writing moves that are valuable there.
2: For sure. Every year in that research class, because my feedback is pretty harsh, every single semester I have students who said, you know, I thrived in my English classes and I thought I was a good writer until I entered this class. I've noticed over you know, my tenure here, you play that more of a parental role where you're you know, encouraging them, saying like, no, 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 you're a good writer, you've established it here, like you were saying, in this context, in this discipline, in this setting, and now we just wanna make you a better writer by being able to adapt to this new way we're doing this. I'm dealing with social science majors, and so all their classes at the university level are going to be uh, asking for APA format, so I try to highlight those items Then there's like almost a backlash that I hear from some students who are like, then why do we learn all of these English MLA format? They think that they have to know one way and then that's it, like the rest of their lives. And I'm like, just like you have different interests and you evolve and grow as a person, you're going to have to do things in different ways. And the more we're exposed to, the more knowledgeable we are. And uh, that's for the better
1: yeah and I think you're highlighting something important, Josh, that like I think students struggle with early on that I think we're trying to teach them, but they're they're still in the journey, so it's kind of hard to see the road that you're on when you're on it that writers are always learning and growing mm-hmm. like as I was saying like in this article that I'm working on with some colleagues, we are really good writers, and yet putting together the article and submitting it to the editors, they were like, oh my gosh, this article is really great. We'd love to have it in the journal. Here's a million changes we would like you to make. In a context where you're trying to convey information, there's always room to improve. There's always ways to see this differently and change. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, But I think they've, like, over the course of, like, their education for students, we shorten the exposure to mistakes are part of learning. And growth. And as a writer, you are always gonna learn and grow, and there's always gonna be feedback, even when you've quote unquote mastered certain things. The people in that discipline are going to say, well, couldn't you do this? Or couldn't you offer that? And then they've internalized that that kind of feedback is a bad thing. It means they're not learning or they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. I think it's really hard for even I'm students when I give them more feedback and they say like, oh, I'm just not doing it. And I'm like, no, no, you're actually really growing here. And I think that's even harder when they switch disciplines because now they're not just getting the idea of growth and writing in a discipline. They're going to get between disciplines.
2: You're absolutely right. Like you said, we've gone down the road. So we look back and we see, oh yeah, that's why it forked that way. And that's why we did this. But when you're on it, in real time, all they are are hearing are the criticisms. In my class, it's a very militaristic kind of break you down, then build you up kind of approach. And we have a mantra of the class that don't take anything personally, because I'm not saying that, you know, something's wrong with your character. I'm just saying that, you know, what you had offered me here was not consistent with the requirements. You know, it could be definitely challenging. And what you were saying, like in the cross-disciplinary kind of, issues it also triggered a a memory of mine of just in graduate school working with my like thesis committee we'd have one member telling me to write one way and include this and then another member saying no don't do that undo that and then the chair saying no put it back in and so you're like do i know what i'm doing now like am i worthy of this degree anymore i I write like crap. Mm -hmm. So we still experience it for sure. I remember working on a project here at COS uh, years ago uh, where we were interviewing CTE students and um, trying to offer a voice for them. And and I did my write-up and I did it a very formal kind of official write-up by discipline and everything we found. And it was this like 90 page report. The dean was like, could you whittle that down to about like 16 pages and i said no i can't do that like that's ridiculous so i did a little bit but you know the quick and dirty version of it i thought he was gonna love it but you know looking back i'm like oh yeah that's pretty overwhelming for someone to digest uh and so we have our own kind of plans or ideas and that brings up another point of students walk in with preconceived notions of how to complete an assignment what's to be expected as opposed to going like by the rubric of that individual assignment for that instructor for that class and that's a a lesson that students learn every single semester in my class the first homework assignment their first essay they write what they think they should write and then after they're ripped up the second assignment is, oh, I should follow the rubric now. And then they improve.
1: Yeah, I think that gets to an important like concept about writing, which is we have to get away from our entrenched practices. And I think students go through a long period of like, you know, K through 12 of learning how to approach writing in a very static, entrenched way. Mm-hmm. I think what's often the most troubling is that they come to these new contexts and rather than thinking about it at writing as a rhetorical, situational activity, like, who are you talking to? Who's the person who's reading this? What are you trying to say? How, how would it best be conveyed to that audience, to that person? They approach it with the entrenched practice. And that's normal when you're stressed, right, to go back to an entrenched practice that is comfortable, that situational part is actually really normal and good. The earlier we can get students to realize that, like the less I think that, that situational change will be traumatic.
0: We're gonna back up a little bit and then we'll come go for forward. It. One thing I noticed that it was really interesting is at one point, we were talking about like article currency. In English, I think like we've talked about, we value voice and like a lot of times we'll take narratives and use them as sources or we're, we'll be happy with different kinds of sources. So like in introductory or whatever classes in both your disciplines, when we talk about credible sources, what what does that mean? With
2: For mine, when we're covering credible sources, it's we're looking at uh, chiefly primary sources. Uh, I'm trying to advocate for them to conduct original research and then to, to hear it from the horse's mouth, though there are credible secondary sources available as well. And that's when we start relying on the location in which we um, retrieve that information. So uh, that's why, you know, these library databases can be filtered with peer-reviewed kinds of articles and things like that. I also tell them just very practical pieces of advice when navigating a particular web page, you know, if it's inundated with a bunch of advertisement, and then which institution is it associated with? This article you found in the research page of Stanford University, or was it just on some random platform? Mm-hmm. Um, authorship is a big deal as well. It irks me when students are like, oh, "I couldn't find the author." And then I'm like, well, then how do you know that's credible? Because did this reputable individual write it, or did just some random person have this opportunity to just um, spout whatever they feel? They have to find authorship, and then within the text itself, are they giving a comprehensive picture of that theory or of that topic? Uh, and for you know the novice researcher, it's tricky at first. And so that's where I jump in. And I said, I don't think you have a credible source here, or it's dated, you know, they find an article from 1960 or something. And, and I said, so nothing has been done in the last 60 years on this topic. So let's look for more recent items. So there's a number of things that we kind of go through. And um, just like with anything, though, in life is experience is what's going to trump a anything else. And soon they could start uh, telling the the difference between them, where they're like, I don't trust this source here. They're not really citing any other like sources. They have typos in their write up and and things like that. And so they start finding these things. uh, But of course, I'm watching as well.
0: Never mind. That sounds like English. <laughs> like I don't know. Like I think it's really similar. One thing that's always interesting to me is the dated kind of thing. Like I've realized that, like, what dated is really depends on the discipline. It's something I kind of talk to my students about because, like, if I was writing a, for a, like a literature class in my grad work, nineteen sixty sounds fine. it Would be whatever, but like obviously I wouldn't want my doctor reading stuff from nineteen sixty. Says Eric, do you have anything to add to that?
1: No, I think this is speaking to importantly speaking to how. Some th- practices actually do overlap and, uh, and being clear about how useful that is for students so that they can maybe more effectively transfer that information. Because Josh is talking about, I think many of the things that we talk about. When we think about like English One, for instance, though, we're, we're often tasked, and I think this is in our outline and in our outcomes, that part of our job is to help them navigate media at large. And so what are useful sources for English One, I think is broader. Uh, I think we can bring opinion pieces in like well researched pieces in the Atlantic right that mm. isn 't really peer reviewed those don 't go to you know several other authors before they get published in the Atlantic, but they can be really good pieces and I think the same is true for a new Yorker and so I think the media part for us is a is a bit larger for us to navigate, which also has its own problems and so I think we also address things though like bias right like we 're we're trying to help students see that like Even something coming from good places can be extremely biased. And I think like a good example would be recently Stanford had to kind of retract a statement made by somebody from Stanford about COVID-19. But that person from Stanford who made that comment was not in the medical field. But because they saw from Stanford, they were like, oh, this is a really important source, right? And so often what I try to teach students is like, try to triangulate if the source is really old, is it coming from somebody who's really knowledgeable? So I'm thinking like Charles Bazerman in composition, for instance, like you could go back to his pieces in the late 90s and they would still matter. And so what you're triangulating there is currency with credibility. Determine like, is this still a worthy source? And I think those are some of the things that we kind of... To try to help students navigate media at large in addition to kind of the more scholarly aspects of source credibility.
0: Two more questions, if we can get through them. The first is organization. I feel like we organize essays differently in disciplines, so can we talk about organization?
2: Yeah, sure. Eric, you go first.
1: <laughs> okay, well, so I think for an English one, again, because we're talking about like an introductory class, we're trying, I think, to get students to think about organization as both something that is constructed by like genre, like different places have organizations that matter. Right. But then also like, this is your argument how do you wanna best make your case, right? What information should come first? Like, what do they need to know first to understand this concept, right? So if you're using an important term, it doesn't really make logical sense for that to be defined on the last page of the essay. And you know, sometimes I've talked to students where they'll say like, well, I was saving it as like the answer to the mystery. And I'm like, okay, let's talk about genre here. That works in a mystery novel because people expect that suspense. In an argumentative paper, that is not what they want. They want to be able to understand your argument as you progress. I treat organization more rhetorically. What information needs to come first or second or last in order to convey what you want to the audience you are trying to communicate to? I think we don't prioritize like sections, right? That are much more common in disciplinary academic publications. We don't ask students to, like, first it's your introduction, then it's your methodology, then it's the discussion. We don't have things like that. Uh, But I imagine Josh will probably speak to some of those here in a minute that are like disciplinary genre constructed organizational patterns that are absolutely necessary in that discipline.
2: For sure. In the research methods course, we have Five chapters of the research manuscript, and so we have an introductory chapter followed by a literature review, and then we have methodology, and then we have results, and then we have discussion, and uh, that is the same. And it, it doesn't matter where you're coming from; everyone knows it's going to be in that particular order. For me, I mean, I, I'm drinking the Kool-Aid, so I understand the rationale for this, and and think it makes sense, because in the first chapter, you're basically introducing what your topic is. In the case of research, you know, what your hypothesis is, and then you're supporting it through the literature review. And then you move on to, okay, like, so this is what topic I'm interested in. So now I'm gonna move on to like this is how I'm going to approach this, how I'm going to study it. And then you finish with like this is what we found. It's different in my other classes. I think there's more free reign, you know, where they have some flexibility. But then I I start reading these papers and it it starts to upset me as I'm reading them because they're not following the order in which I reported the rubric. So you have some really crafty writers who they take all of the, those pieces of the rubric and then they kind of intertwine them and, and present it in a, a different, unique way. And if they have this great flowing document, I'm like, oh, this is great as long as you hit all of those uh, points there. Um, one thing though that I think is Maybe unique to some of my uh, assignments, and I'm not sure if this is universal to the social sciences or psychology, but so let's say, for instance, in the class that I just taught, I just finished yesterday, super excited. My summer vacation starts now. In that class, they had to become this mini expert of this social psychological phenomenon. They were assigned this concept and then they have to apply the concept and evaluate the concept. But originally, like the first portion of the rubric is they have to define the concept. And so a lot of students, like when they start writing, they're like, here is my essay about this. And in this essay, I'm going to be talking about this and talking about this like a traditional kind of essay that you learn way back in elementary school. I'm like, don't tell me what you're about to talk about. Just talk about it. And so their first sentence on there, I want them to define the concept and they don't like that. They feel uncomfortable with that. And then at the end, after their evaluation, they're compelled to write a conclusion where they're like, this is what I just talked about. And I'm like, you don't need that. You evaluated it, it's over. You know, It's very uh, course specific and assignment specific, but uh, for me, there's always a, a specified order. And I know probably in English classes, there's a larger flexibility in that. Yeah.
1: And I think you're, you hit the, like, that conclusion thing. Sure. Um, I think it's part of that entrenched practice we were talking about earlier. And the, I'm a going to talk about this, which is like an artifact in some forms of academic writing where I'll read articles where it's like, when they're particularly long, they will say like, in this article, I will talk about, All of these things right like it is a it is a piece of academic writing but it's often like pulled in in places that it doesn't really belong and part of that is because it's like I'm in this new place and I I want to use this academic piece of writing so I'm gonna put it in here and I'm gonna have this conclusion because I've been taught for 12 years that in my conclusion I need to restate everything I said and we're like okay no no you don't like we want to get you away from that to think about this writing context differently
0: any last advice for students?
2: I'll say I think the, the flowing kind of common thread here with all of it is it needs to be very discipline or class or assignment specific. You, you don't want to just stay in your lane and try to apply that to everything because you're going to have different asks for each particular class and assignment. You have the foundation, you've established yourself as a writer, you've passed a lot of classes through K-12 that encourages your writing ability. And now it's time to get creative and uh, apply it in different ways.
1: I would say like, if English One students were listening to this, and I hope you are. (laughs) (laughs) um,
2: I hope you are listening
1: to this right now, is to say that like in English One, you're developing your authorial voice, you're developing how you craft your own arguments and what you understand, and you're putting them together, and that we want you to have that. And then, but through this process to understand things about writing, that I don't think English One teachers are teaching you the way to write. They're trying to give you a way into this academic discipline with some s- sets of knowledge some skills to apply to these other contexts but in those other ones i want to encourage students to think about like what is being valued by that discipline because that's going to come out in how they want you to write and i think part of that is the writing assignment like josh was talking about and i think part of it is also like the situation at large right like what is your writing trying to do in that discipline? Because that's going to change how you write. And I think that's okay. I think a lot of students feel worried that I'm in this new context and they're asking me to do different things that my English one teacher told me not to do, like, or this instructor is asking me to not do things that my English one teacher told me to do. And to think that that switch is okay. And to use what you've learned to apply what's useful and then to learn that new situation. Because I think if they can approach writing as flexible, as growth, right, that they're learning new things and they're going to make mistakes, and that writing is going to look different here, that's going to be really powerful for them no matter what discipline they approach. Because communication is not universal, always situational and contextual. And I think what I would want them to take away is like, learn as much as you can, but understand we're just starting you on this academic literacy journey. That's great.
0: One last question that I've been asking everybody. What, what are you learning right now?
2: I'm learning how to navigate through this alternate teaching format. Uh, you know, I've been practicing um, with all the little ca- caveats of uh, Zoom. And what do you do when, you know, somebody drops out of a call? Shoot, what happened to me last week in my own class? I, I was kicked out of my own Zoom meeting. <laughs> Like, I didn't know that was possible. (laughs) I didn't know that could happen. And uh, so it's a humbling feeling. But, you know, I think we're gluttons for this. We love learning and acquiring new skills. We're becoming better instructors because of it.
1: Yeah. Eric? Yeah, I want to second that notion about, like, being gluttons for the learning is that I always am involved in like several projects. So my learning is always messy. I have different stacks on my, I have one gigantic stack on my desk right now to my left that is pretty much everything. So I had to clean that today. But in that stack is like class preparation. So one of the things I'm learning is how do I make the writing material more diverse, more interesting to their culture and their backgrounds, right? Very much like Josh trying to think about how do I teach in, in this alternate world where everything is negotiated through technology and it seems real and not real at the same time. Like, And I thrive on knowing my students. So how am I going to do that in a way that's meaningful through this. And so I'm also learning about disability rhetoric. I'm trying to learn how to make my courses more accessible to a larger variety of students. For students listening to this, maybe this coming semester, I think I'm learning how to thrive in an environment where you are designed to be cut off for your safety, um, you know, for everybody's safety. What does it mean to like, be alive and connected when being connected means it's dangerous? Right. And how to live in that world with kids behind me.
0: (laughs) I like how I asked you what you, what one thing you're learning and you gave us like eight.
1: (laughs) Sorry. I told you I'm a glutton. I told you.
0: I've been really enjoying (laughs) asking that question. I think it's important for students to realize that we are still all growing. Anyway thank you guys. I feel like this should be really helpful. And yeah, thank you for both for participating today. And yeah, students, if you're listening, you can look us all up on uh, the COS website if you want to email us and ask us questions. And if you have things that like you want me to do podcast episodes about, email me and tell me and we will do those things like they will happen. Um, So anyway, thank you so much.